Well, good morning and welcome again to St. Paul's. So glad you're here with us to worship. So glad you're joining us online. As I begin, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord of all mercy, we pray that you send your spirit upon us now and drown us in it so that we might know only you and in your word see the face of your son, Jesus, in whose name we ask this and all things. Amen. So, a while back, I was having a conversation with a group of young adults about relationship and dating, and to protect the innocent, I'm not going to say whether it was here or at another church. And at some point, the question, unsurprisingly, I'm scanning the room for children, I think we're all grown enough for this, at some point, the question unsurprisingly arose, when is it okay to be intimate with someone? And we were talking about what it means to approach this part of our lives through the lens of holiness and scripture. But somehow, the conversation got to the point of like, well, okay, I'm waiting until marriage, but what counts as married enough? Like, at what point in the wedding ceremony itself would I be married enough for it to start to be okay? Like, would, okay, right after the vows, or does it have to be after the service is over? And I said, look, I admire your enthusiasm. And nothing would make me happier than to officiate your wedding, but you absolutely must wait until you have left the premises and I am not around anymore. <laughs> and it was a funny moment, but it was revelatory too, because we all have this love-hate relationship with rules, don't we? None of us wants to be told what to do, but we all want to know what the right thing to do is, and especially so as people following Jesus. Whether you're a committed Christian or spiritually seeking, you're here this morning because some part of you is asking or is interested to know, what's it mean? What's it look like to follow Jesus? So today, as Bishop Jenny mentioned, we're launching our summer-long sermon series on the Ten Commandments in that vein. Ten pillars of the law that, the God, that God gave to the Jewish people, Ten Commandments, Ten Weeks. And today, we're going to be talking about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But I also need to set up the whole series to let you know what to expect. So today you're going to get two sermons for the price of one. I know you all paid the admissions fee at the door. If you didn't, you can just do that on your way out. Uh, because before we can get into the first commandment, I want to sketch out for us how we're going to approach all the commandments this summer and what it means as Christians to come to the Ten Commandments. Not simply as a narrow, restrictive set of rules that we have to follow but as words that open up the abundant life that Jesus promised to his followers. The Bible calls the Ten Commandments ten words, and ten words for life. That's what we're calling this series, ten words that give life. So I'm going to spend a lot of my time today by looking at the Jewish law, uh, what it means for our lives as Christians, spend the first half of the sermon doing that, and show us how we can understand the law the Ten Commandments, as people learning how to follow Jesus. And then I'll turn and close by applying that to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? So first, what are the Ten Commandments? You may have heard of them, but not know much more than that. There's no shame in that. We had an amazing talk from Professor Lisa, Professor Lisa Ray Beale last week, setting up the series. If you couldn't attend, I encourage you to watch it on our YouTube channel. But let me give you a little overview of the Ten Commandments here. The Ten Commandments are the first ten of the 613 rules given in the Torah, which is the law of the Israelites, the ancient Jewish nation. We find that law in the books that, as Christians, we call the Old Testament. And the law is sort of the terms and conditions, if you will, of the covenant, the binding agreement that God made with the Israelites, that they would be God's people and he would be their God. 
Now, Jesus was a faithful Jew, as were all of his followers at first, so they kept the law. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, when non-Jews started joining the church, it was a hotly debated question as to whether or not non-Jews had to keep the Jewish law in order to be good Christians, because all the Christians were, were Jews. In a nutshell, the answer since the earliest days of the church has been no. The law wasn't given to non-Jews. It's presumably that's most of us here, so it's not for us. So we don't keep kosher, require circumcision, prohibit tattoos, that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that the Jewish law is irrelevant or meaningless to Christians either. Because the law teaches Christians, can teach Christians, what it means to, what it looks like to live like Jesus. Jesus himself said, don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets, I came to fulfill them. That is, he came not just to obey the law, but to fulfill it, to live into its fullest purpose. Because the rules and commandments of the Jewish law, how to behave toward God, how to behave toward each other, they aren't ends unto themselves. The law is a means to an end, which is God's purpose for humanity, which is love. The law is supposed to be a way of life by which people can love God with all that they are and love their neighbors as themselves. In fact, Jesus said that all the law and the prophets, which he came to fulfill, hung on those two commandments, love God, love neighbor. The law is a, the way of perfect love, perfect love for God, perfect love for neighbor, God's vision for creation. And that's what Jesus fulfills in his own life. Now, what this means for us primar as primarily non-Jewish followers of Jesus is that we're called not to ignore the law, but to live into its purpose, the love of God and neighbor. And we achieve that by an ongoing relationship with Jesus in the Spirit, students learning to become like, more like our teacher. The Holy Spirit transforms us more and more in the image of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit wants to use the law to teach us. Use the law to teach us. And that's precisely what we're going to try and do in the sermon series, to come under the teaching of the law through the Spirit to see how it illuminates and illustrates that abundant life that Jesus offers. So why the Ten Commandments in particular? Well, if we're seeking to be taught by the law, the Ten Commandments are uniquely helpful. It's sort of the Goldilocks section of the law for Christians, if you will. Just right. Not too general, not too specific. It's not as general as love God, love neighbor. The Ten Commandments give us some content as to what that kind of love ought to look like, keep it from being just vibes, but without the regulation of the full Jewish law. And that's why Christians have historically affirmed the continued relevance of the Ten Commandments for faithful Christian living. Because whatever else a good Christian life looks like, it doesn't look like less than the Ten Commandments. Their specificity keeps us accountable in our love for God and neighbor, and together they paint a fulsome picture of a life shaped by these loves. So what's all this mean? Let me come back to that conversation about intimacy that I started the, the sermon with. I picked that instance, but as a pastor, I encounter this all the time. I know Jenny and Ben do as well. People want to know what counts as sin. What's okay, what's not? What are, the, what, are the lines that I, what are the lines that I can't cross, and where are they? Like, can I do this with my dating partner, but not that? Can I have one drink, but not two? Two, but not three? That sort of thing. And it's the approach most of us take toward our taxes, to be honest. What's the limit of what I can do and get away with without getting in trouble? And I don't mean to pick on anybody because most of us do this at some point or another. But if that's our approach to Christianity, we're kind of missing the point. 
First of all, towing the line of sin is a dangerous way to live because if you spend your life tap dancing at the edge of a cliff, you're going to fall off sooner or later. And second, if you're obsessing about what's okay and what's not, where are the lines, you're missing out. We're missing out on the life that God's trying to give us because when the law prohibits something, it does so for a positive purpose. I don't tell my kids not to touch the stove because I hate stoves, but because I love them. And the point of me making this rule is not for them to see like how close they can get to the fire without getting burned. Fulfilling the law like Jesus did isn't just about not breaking the law. It's about living into the full purpose. Like life isn't just about not killing people and not committing adultery. You can go through life never murdering and never cheating and still be a son of a gun. The Christian life doesn't consist in simply not crossing these lines. They are minimums of Christian behavior, not maximums. They're floors, they're not ceilings. We're not called into the negative of avoiding sin so much as we are into the positive of cultivating righteousness and goodness. You see the difference? And that's why there are some bright lines to the Christian life, absolutely, that we shouldn't cross, but most of the things we wrestle with, the primary question for Christian living is not, will I go to hell if I do this thing, but will this action, this habit, this way of being, make me more like Jesus? And the law that Jesus fulfills, the Ten Commandments, teach us and coaches us into how to be more like him. Okay? So enough about that. You get the idea, you get the setup. This brings us finally, to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And I just want to show what happens when you approach the commandment as something to be fulfilled rather than simply obeyed. So let's ask, let's ask these questions. What's the positive purpose in this commandment? How does Jesus fulfill this commandment? And where does this commandment give life? What kind of life does it give to us as individuals and to us as a community? So as we think about the spirit of this commandment, not just the letter of the law, the first commandment is deceptively straightforward, I think. Straightforward in that it's reasonably clear, deceptively so because there's a lot going on. God starts the Ten Commandments by declaring who God is. This is Exodus 21 and 2. It says, I'm the Lord your God. And the word translated the Lord here is actually God's proper name, Yahweh, the name that God told Moses at the burning bush, which means I am that I am. So, I'm Yahweh your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. So, here we've got the personal name of God, Yahweh. This is no impersonal, higher power, supreme being. Here we've got the relationship of Yahweh, the Lord, to the people, the Lord your God. You could have other gods, but I, the Lord, am your God. And here we've got what the Lord has done the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And after all that, God's name, God's relationship, and God's saving action, a commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now the translation's interesting here. The, the Hebrew could equally be rendered as, you shall not have the gods of others. You shall have no foreign gods in my presence. Because when God sets the Israelites free from Egypt, he said explicitly, this is to pass judgment on the gods of Egypt, the false gods of Egypt. Who are they to hold my people captive? And the Israelites are going to be wandering among other nations with other gods. And the temptation for them, just like us, is always going to be. Worship our gods too. You don't have to give up on, on the Lord. Just, just say prayers to the other gods also. Because why not? It's a hard life, right? We need all the help we can get. Can't hurt, help, can't hurt to have a few extra gods in your back pocket. 
And that's why it's both radical and obvious that the first commandment is the, of the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt is, when you come to me, don't bring any other gods with you. I'm it. I'm it. Deceptively straightforward. Don't worship other gods. But what's the positive here? What's the life that this commandment gives? If you do it, if you don't bring other gods into the presence of the living Lord, if you fulfill the commandment, what's the life that you get? Let me answer that question with another question. If you have a God, where do you have your God? If I have $100 in my bank account, I have it at RBC. If I have my phone, I have it in my pocket. Where do you keep a God? Your heart. Your heart is where you have your God or your gods. Not your hands, not your pockets, not your minds. Doesn't matter which God, true or false, if you're laying hold of a God or the God, you are doing it in your heart. And when you approach God, you approach with your heart. Now, if I'm not about keeping this first commandment, if I'm hedging my bets with other gods, then my heart is divided, isn't it? Because it's trying to hold on to a bunch of different gods. My heart is a hypocrite. Because the fundamental question of being alive is, who will we worship? And the question of worship means, to whom will we offer sacrifice? The sacrifice of our money, our time, our affections, our thoughts, our loves. We sacrifice all day, every day. The only question is, what altars are we sacrificing at? What gods are we worshiping? And I can worship the Lord who saved me from death at the cross, and in the next breath, worship any other power to get something I've decided I want. And my heart will be divided, and that means my heart will be complicated. My heart will be anxious. But this commandment makes another kind of life possible. And it's a really beautiful life. If I obey this commandment, if I have no other gods before Yahweh my God, bring no foreign gods into the Lord's presence, the presence of the Lord my God who brought me from the Egypt of death and the slavery of sin. If I obey this commandment, then my heart is uncomplicated. Then my heart is undivided. Then my heart is simple. My heart is quiet and simple. Sit with that thought for a minute. What would it feel like to have a simple heart? A heart that wasn't pulled in a hundred different directions. Like, have you ever had a moment where you asked yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I killing myself to get this thing that I don't really care about? This thing you want to buy, this promotion, like whatever. Why is it so important? It's foreign gods. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's not the life God wants for us. That's not the life this commandment gives. God didn't save us from death and sin to leave us in a state of perpetual anxiety. Worshiping other gods, but hedging our bets with other power, uh, worshiping God, but hedging our bets with other powers. God's saying, I'm sufficient. I've got you. You don't need to trust, you don't need anyone else. You can trust me because I've given you my name and I saved you and I loved you and I will bring you home. Jesus knew this perfectly after he was baptized. He was tempted by the devil. The devil says, Worship me, I'll give you the whole world, everything you could want. And Jesus replies, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus had a perfectly simple heart, no trace of a foreign God in him. And that's not true for the rest of us. 
Our lives are complicated and our hearts reflect that fact, pulled in any number of directions by desires and drives that we worship as if they were God's. But, but what would it look like in your own life if your heart were simple for God? The God who saved you. The God who ransomed you at the cross, who saved you from sin and death. Because every time I screw up, every time I go wrong, it's because my heart is muddled, it's divided, it's because I'm not simple. There are lots of things to worry about and care about in life, of course, but what would it look like to trust all of it to God alone, the God who's proven God's self by what God has done? Because at bottom, this commandment is an invitation to trust God alone and live into that. So what would it look like for our life as a community if we followed this commandment? If we together had a heart simple for the love of God, not complicated by any other concerns, all the business that can burden and distract a church, comparing ourselves, worrying about this or that, just a heart that's simple for God. We're going to sing together. You heard your children then, you hear your children now. You are the same God. So we can trust you. It's the first commandment for a reason that's both radical and obvious. You can trust the Lord your God who's always saved God's people. You don't have to hedge your bets. You don't need foreign gods. The Lord is enough. Rest in that. Amen.